If you've ever had a really bad headache, the worst headache you've ever had in your life, the kind that keeps you up day and night and just won't quit, keep listening because this episode just might save your life. Hi, this is Candy O'Terry. Welcome to the story behind her success. All too often, severe headaches like the one I just described are explained away by stress or misdiagnosed as migraines when they could be a sign of a brain aneurysm. In the spotlight, a woman who has spent her career in the healthcare field and for the last 16 years has been the executive director of the Brain Aneurysm Foundation. She's here to not only give us some life-saving information, but to share her career story with us. Her name is Christine Buckley, and this is her story. Christine, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Candy, for having me. I really appreciate it. Let's begin with what is a brain aneurysm? It's a weakening in the vessel wall in the brain. So some people equate it to like an inner tube of a tire, and it's when that weakening goes to such a point that then a bubble forms, and that bubble is the brain aneurysm. And that bubble just keeps accumulating blood and eventually can lead to a rupture. Is that the same thing as a stroke? It isn't. It's a subset of stroke. That's kind of our problem with awareness and education is because people just know about strokes. And fortunately, that education and awareness has been tremendous for that disease. And the stroke everyone knows about with the FAST program is an ischemic stroke. And a brain aneurysm is what is known as a hemorrhagic stroke, which is a bleeding versus a clot. What are the five warning signs that a person might be experiencing a brain aneurysm? It could be the worst headache of their life, or it could be more subdued as pain behind the eye, vision change, overall just not feeling well, a headache different than what they may otherwise have, could be neck pain. So very vague symptoms. I also hear there's drooping eyelid and sensitivity to light and even confusion. Absolutely. could be all of those. Women between the ages of 35 and 60 are more likely to experience these symptoms. What's the research on that? There is a lot of research on that, thankfully, and unfortunately, at this point in time, there are no good answers. Is it hormonally related? That is what they're trying to figure out, and that's one of the really important parts of our mission is the research on such topics as women and why is it that they're more likely to be impacted than men. There's a lot of stress involved in being a woman in 2022. There's a lot that's expected of us. And I'm hearing what you're saying, too, about the hormone piece. You know, I remember hearing menopause equals lots of changes in your body and and headaches tend to be one of them. But I'm also hearing that the misdiagnosis is often around thinking it's a migraine. Absolutely. Misdiagnosis is, again, a huge problem. And 25% of the time people are misdiagnosed. So that is why our awareness and education is so critical. And we developed a campaign called Scan to Save around that because the stories have been repeated. Again, we're a national organization based in Massachusetts, but we hear all too often that people went to their doctor, whether it was a primary care, an ER, a walk-in clinic with, usually it is that headache that drives somebody, but they know themselves. People know their body well enough and they go and seek medical attention. And then what happens is they often get sent away saying, oh, it's just the migraine. Oh, you have flu. Oh, you have stress in your life. And we had a classic symptom with our current board chair where he went to his primary care and told all the classic signs and symptoms. He knew there was something different. Got sent home with sleeping pills and pain medicine for a week and ruptured on day six and had a massive brain bleed. You know, it's interesting because there's one thing to have a headache 
and then I was reading in some of the literature, this is the worst headache you've ever had in your life. Warning, warning, warning. Absolutely. No, I mean, huge. The stories of people just saying it's unlike anything that they've ever had. Like it's been hit in the back of the head or they feel like something hot is pouring down their head as well. So those symptoms are very key and definitely someone needs to seek medical attention. But on the flip side, sometimes they could be less dramatic than that. But it can be like a warning leak. They call it a sentinel bleed where someone may have like an instant of twang in their head, maybe not the worst headache of their life, but they still felt something that wasn't a migraine and something different. And that's why it's just critical to seek medical attention and really be an advocate for yourself. And to listen to your body, which I'm a huge believer in doing. Nobody knows your body better than you do. Well, the campaign is called Scan to Save. Tell us all about it. What people don't understand about brain aneurysms is they're very treatable. And the treatment for the disease and to seal off an aneurysm has developed and continues to develop with either clipping through a craniotomy or coils where they go up through the groin and stents. And now sometimes they're going through the wrist or through somebody's nose. So brain aneurysms are very treatable. But you can't treat something you don't know that you have. So they do run in families. Again, we said the average age, 35 to 60, women more than men. So the scan to save is really, some doctors are working on that protocol, first of all, for women, again, in that age bracket, if they have high blood pressure, family history, or if they're a smoker. That would then lend credibility to the fact that they really should be scanned. So we're hoping to get to that point with the disease. But again, 25% of the time, three out of four cases of misdiagnosis are due to the failure of a scan not being performed. So the technology is there, the treatment methods are there, but if someone doesn't know that they have it, we can't help them or the medical field can't help So them. when you say scan to save, are we talking about something as simple as going in and getting a CT scan on your head? Generally, an MRI or an MRA are the best scans to identify a brain aneurysm. And you can see it on the screen Oh, right absolutely, away. 100%. What is the treatment plan? I hear so many stories it's, about people who say, oh, my head hurts. I think I'll get in the car. No, please don't do that. Right. Call for help. Right, Absolutely. I mean, it is very similar to the ischemic stroke that we alluded to earlier. I mean, brain is time. And that's what people need to have that blood on your brain when it is a rupture. So the ruptures are what we're trying to prevent. Again, the Scan to Save program it lends itself to that because if you treat the aneurysm, that bubble on the vessel wall before it bursts, That's what we want people to do. The aneurysm itself isn't necessarily dangerous. It's the rupturing of that aneurysm. So the scan to save is to find the aneurysm and treat it with the clips, the coils, the stents prior to the rupture. Because somebody could go in, have that treatment, and pretty much get out of the hospital either the same day or the next day. But a rupture is going to lead to long hospital stays, long recoveries, someone maybe never able to go back to work. So there's loss of family, community, so many things. The website is bafound.org, bafound.org. That's the Brain Aneurysm Foundation. You are the executive director of the foundation. Tell us a little bit about the mission. The mission is to promote early detection and to raise awareness of the signs, the symptoms, and the risk factors, and then to work with the medical communities to provide support groups to patients and family, as well as to further research. Walk us through your day, just a little bit. They're busy because we are a small office. We're a national organization, and there's very few people doing a lot of things. So 
One in 50 people are walking around in the U.S. with a brain aneurysm, and one ruptures every 18 minutes. So there are people just being impacted constantly. So we are kind of a major resource to people because if you Google brain aneurysm, you're going to find us. The medical community now refers us to their patients and family members to find support groups, to learn more just about what to expect in recovery journey. So there's a lot of things that go on every day, and that's sort of what I like about it. This You really never know what each day is going to hold. Well, it sounds like it requires you to have lots of different skills. So what are the essential traits that a person needs to run a foundation like the Brain Aneurysm Foundation? I mean, I'd say, first of all, it's passion. I was a volunteer for about six, seven years prior to coming on as the first full-time employee ever. So I think you have to have drive, leadership. You have to be compassionate and care. And through my volunteerism, it's when I met so many people affected, the families, the caregivers, which my heart breaks for them equally as survivors sometimes, just because their lives are so changed and there's really not as much that you can do for them. So for me, it's really the passion. And in this case of this disease, there's still so much to be done. So every day there's a challenge. There's an unmet need. And that's what me and my team are working to try to fulfill and make things better for people. Take me back to your decision to become a volunteer in the first place. I became a volunteer because my sister is one of the founders. So she and Dr. Ogilvie at the time were at Mass General Hospital, and it was another nurse at the time who had a rupture, got treated, and came to them saying, can you help me form a foundation? I don't even know what to expect in my recovery journey. So this is back in 1994. They did it. They had really no foresight whatsoever. Um, I'm the youngest of five kids, and we were always taught to help, volunteer, you know, give back. So I was brought on very early on just to help with these small fundraisers they had locally. And then I started an event in Marshfield, Mass. That's now held in Boston. That was we just had for the 21st year our arterial challenge. So that's kind of how I got roped into this. And like I was just because you were being a good sister. Yeah, basically. <laughs> and I was a healthcare consultant. And kind of one thing led to the other. But the volunteerism is what really helped me develop a passion and see the need that there could be so much more done. Well, in fact, you know, I was looking back at all the things that you've done in terms of your career path, and you've always been involved in healthcare. Tell me why and how that has kept you inspired throughout your career. Initially, it was auditing. So, you know, not the best healthcare kind of role, but Fortunately, from that, I went to a healthcare consulting company. So I think through the consulting work, being in hospitals, meeting different people, just knowing about different disease states, having a sister, a nurse, having a brother, an endodontist, just sort of that kind of world always did appeal to me, but not on that hands-on doctor-nurse role. So I think it's the part of helping people, being able to make a difference in people's lives and seeing the ability that to help make people better and other people not have to suffer maybe what someone else in their family did was just always intriguing to me. Well, you've spoken about your sister and your brother, and I do believe that childhood shapes us and it molds us. So tell us a little bit about your upbringing. Where do you come from? What was life like in your house? I feel super fortunate. I had two wonderful parents. Unfortunately, lost my mom just in November. My dad's 91. Both of them were super hard workers. I was the youngest of five, so I had three older brothers, and then I had my sister. And I think I enjoyed being the youngest for sure. Our house was always busy. We always had people in and out, and we were always taught to love and to care and 
give back. And we had a strong faith growing up in the Catholic Church, and I still hold that with me today. So I feel fortunate that how I grew up, I don't think there'd be much I would change. We always had a dog, and (laughs) it was always a lot of fun and busy. So was there a moral code in your house, a golden rule? What was the big thing in your house? It was, you know, to treat others as you want to be treated. That was really the golden rule to live by and just respect people and treat people the way you want to be treated. When you were growing up, who was your role model and why? Growing up, I'd probably have to say my sister. I mean, the one who was bossy and told you you had to get involved in the brain aneurysm foundation. Yeah, basically. (laughs) Well, actually, I am been known to be the bossy one. She's known as the good sister, but that's okay. But you know, there's an eight-year age difference, so things were certainly different growing up. So I can remember going to her college when they had Little People's Weekend. I was probably ten years old. So it was always a part of her life, but in different ways, in so many ways. But she's very compassionate and very caring, and that's why she is the nurse. I've always been a little bit more business-oriented, I'd have to say, but she was always a role model for me to aspire to. You attended UMass Amherst. You have a degree in finance. Did you know what you wanted to do with your life when you were in college? You're shaking your head now. I did not. I did not. I was always interested in business aspect of things. I always liked money. I was always driven by money. I worked at a restaurant all through high school and college, so I did a lot of dirty work, but I liked getting the cash. So that's what I think propelled me into the finance world. And UMass, I enjoyed that experience. I did enjoy being in the business school and learning different things. But no, I didn't know 100% for sure where that would take me. And I think it's a good thing for people to learn. I have a daughter right now, 22 out of college, and not quite sure where her next role is going to be. And I keep trying to tell her, you don't need to know. I said, look what I'm doing now. I love it. I had no idea I wanted to do this. And I think it's, you know, by the grace of God that I ended up with the opportunity that I have, because when I even volunteered, never was I expected to be the first full-time employee, the executive director, or be here for 16 years. So you just never know. Every job teaches us something. Absolutely. You've spent your career in healthcare. Tell us about some of those stops along the way and what you learned and bring with you every day as the executive director at the Brain Aneurysm Foundation. I mean, it's absolutely true. Everywhere you go, you learn something. So that's the positive. And I started out auditing, and that was great. I just met some really nice people who kind of taught me, yeah, you need to do what you want to do and do things to your best ability. But again, auditing, given what I do now, not that exciting. So my next step after auditing was working in reimbursement in hospitals. Again, you're just meeting people. You're on different teams. And I just think there's lots of little things that individual people can give you. Just for me, it was always the friendships, more outside the hardcore work, the things that people would tell you personally about just striving for things in the future and don't hold yourself back and to move on. When I had my son, I was actually at Charlton Hospital And there was a consultant there who said to me, what are you doing after you have your baby? And at that time, I had actually arranged to have a job at Genzyme in Cambridge full time. And after I had my son, I was like, there's no way I can do this. I can't go to work full time and leave him 100%. So I reached out to this woman. And then that's what started me. I was nine years at this small consulting company called Trinet. And that was, again, fabulous. So there I was more project-based, doing different things and helping different people on different projects, but allowed me to work three days a week to, at that time, be with my son. And actually, that's also sort of what prompted, I think, going to work 
part-time allowed me to do more volunteerism for the foundation that really brought me much more into the fold. How did motherhood change you? Oh, I think it changes everyone. I mean, it's just an amazing thing. I mean, you become a mother, you have this life that is just always there. And I think it probably makes you make different decisions. You know, when again, I had my son and I knew I probably would have been better off in some aspects working full time and getting that greater pay at that time. But the decision was, you know, be flexible and things will work out, have faith. But yeah, they became my priority. And they 25 and 22, they still are. I think they probably wish they weren't in some ways (laughs) with some of the things I'm always checking up on. But I think it does change your mindset and the importance of just life itself and, you know, embracing every day and making it the best for all those around you. Relationships. You've mentioned consultants who spoke to you, people that you worked for who gave you some wisdom and great advice. How important have relationships been in your career? Very important. I mean, this is a thing I have not enjoyed. I think like a lot of people with COVID, I'm a people person. You develop these relationships and again, different capacity, different age groups. And for me, yeah, it's super important because different people have guided me. In fact, the gentleman who kind of approached me about this job was the treasurer at the time of the foundation. And he's the one who pointed out to me, look at all that you've done as a volunteer. You know more about this. Would you be interested in it? And I was like, sure, absolutely. Why not? I thought about it. And in all honesty, there were two people that there was a search done that really said no to the job because of the lack of funding the organization had at the time. And I think I just knew enough of the fact that where this organization could go. I knew people were interested in research. There was nothing being done about that at that time. And that's why when I did come on board, unfortunately, I was asked to have this opportunity to have the job as executive director. And that was the first thing I did was start a research grant program, which then allowed a lot more funding to come in because people were definitely wanted that for this disease. Well, when you have the title of executive director, the buck stops right there at your desk. Exactly. And that makes you a leader. What's your leadership philosophy? How do you lead others? I try not to think of myself as anything more than anyone else that is working there. I mean, I hate to say that I'm someone's boss. I look at everyone on my team as my colleague. You know, we're all in this together. And I have the pressure burdened of, right, making the decisions and the calls and the ultimate yes or no on certain things, which I enjoy too. But I couldn't do what I do without everybody around me, for sure. And I can't even speak enough to the people who work with me because it's been some transitions, COVID changed some things. And a lot of people on my team had to step up and really take on so much more work that they should ever have been asked to do, but they all did it. So I just feel fortunate with the people around me because it allows all of us to continue the work of this foundation. And if I just had somebody that wanted to come in, check the clock and walk out, it wouldn't help me. So fortunately, I have a team that all came to the foundation without knowing anybody impacted by the disease, but they have all become passionate because they've seen the devastation and cause. So no one could come to the Brain Aneurysm Foundation and not care about the disease. So I've just been super fortunate to find some wonderful women, currently all women. We've had uh, male in the past, but right now we're all women and we're tough and we're strong and we work hard and we care. Next few questions we ask everybody who sits where you are today. What do you wish you knew when you first got started? 
something I wished I knew. I mean, I'm a pretty flexible person and don't expect a lot, I think. I don't know. I think just to have faith in yourself and those around you. I mean, we hear so many horrible things every day, but I think people are better than people give them credit for. So I think for people to really depend on those around you and have a good team and develop it. But, you know, you have to push yourself every day. I've never had any great expectations of things. I think I kind of look at things as they are. So you start your day and you go at it as best you can and surround yourself with good people. That's the auditor in you, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when an obstacle is in your path, how do you get around it? Well, I look at it as an obstacle more as a challenge, right? And I do like challenges. So you just have to assess what that obstacle is, look at it, and figure out how you're going to get to the other side of it. And again, you can't do it by yourself. I definitely have mentors, just different people that have either been on our board. I have someone that worked at the consulting company who's now on our finance committee. People that have other business experiences that I do reach out to. So if there's an obstacle, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. It's an opportunity to make something better. But you just have to look at it from all sides and just figure out how you're going to leave it behind you. You know, you just mentioned mentors, and I noticed that you're a member of Chief. Yes. And so I'm wondering how that has worked for you. I know that's a mentorship program. Yeah, absolutely. It's great. I only came on in February. It's super interesting, and it's really fun because we break out into these core groups. So that core group that we're with, we meet regularly on the side and discuss a lot of different things. And it's definitely fun to talk to people, different levels, and what they're facing and how they're dealing with it. And just even if it's somebody that's in hospitality or automotive, whatever it is, an attorney, things are very similar at the base level. So it's just nice to look at things and to share the challenges that we've all had and collaboratively try to figure out how to get through them. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? And can you pass that along to our listeners today? Make the most out of every day and make an impact. Make your life better and those around you better. At this moment and in this chapter in your life, what does success mean to you? Success for me is happiness, knowing you're making a difference, knowing that you're trying and always wanting to do more and do better. I want to say thank you so much for being our guest today on The Story Behind Her Success. Oh, thank you so much, Candy. I appreciate it. Christine Buckley, the Executive Director of the Brain Aneurysm Foundation. To find out more, just go to bafound.org. Thanks again, Christine. Thank you, Candy. And that's The Story Behind Her Success for this week. Thanks again to Christine Buckley, our guest. I'm always on the lookout for the next woman to profile. So if you have someone in mind, could you please let me know? Just go to my website, candyoterry.com. That's candy with a Y, O-T-E-R-R-Y.com. And give the show a follow on your favorite podcast platform. And please tell your friends and your family about the show. Thank you also for leaving a review, if you would be so kind. I'll have a new inspiring story for you next week. When we share our stories, no matter where we are in this great big world, we provide a roadmap towards success. What's your story? I can't wait to hear it.